The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Fascinating interviews and compelling conversations. Be present. The Diane Ray Show. I'm so glad you could join me for today's show. I'm really excited for my guests, and we're going to have just such an amazing conversation. So if you've listened to this show before, you know that I sometimes reference my radio days and how I went from rock jock at WSHE and Big 106 in South Florida to working with some of the most amazing spiritual teachers in the world. So I went from like spinning, you know, Led Zeppelin and stuff like that <laughs> to talking to amazing teachers. It was, it's quite a journey. It's been an interesting journey, but definitely the highlight of that was being able to work with Dr. Wayne Dyer on his weekly online radio show on Hay House Radio during my Hay House Radio days. So Monday was the highlight of my week because I would get to sit sit back and just listen. And I would listen to Dr. Dyer talk to people about anything. And it started out where we would do the show with a set topic or something from one of his books. And then finally, he just said, I don't want to have a topic. Let's just talk about whatever, you know, whatever's going on in the news or what's happening, you know, today. And he just wanted to talk to people. And he did. And he did the show for eight years until his passing. And even to this day, I'll get random emails from someone who called into one of the shows and spoke to Dr. Dyer, and they were just touched. And people will tell me that they finally wrote that book, or they made some major life change at his urging. And whenever I get those emails, it, it just makes me smile. I mean, I it's amazing how the ripples continue out there and his work touched so many people, including me, and he continues to touch people today, so it's still happening. So I was super happy to see that his two youngest daughters, Serena and Sage Dyer, have put pen to paper and published a book themselves, and they've put it out into the world. And it's called The Knowing, 11 Lessons to Understand the Quiet Urges of Your Soul. And it's been out now for a few weeks. You can get it now on Amazon or your local bookstore. And you'll get a unique perspective from his daughter's point of view about growing up with the father of motivation as a dad. And you'll see the real human side, as well as the indelible mark he left on both of their lives. And I read the book in one sitting. I just kind of got into it and and I couldn't, couldn't put it down. And I really loved it. It really touched me. So I'm really happy to welcome both Serena and Sage Dyer to the show today. So thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's so exciting to talk to you. Your voice is so familiar because of having heard him on your radio, you and him together on the radio and podcast before. It's like, I feel like I'm listening to something from a a while ago because I used to hear you with him all the time. It's funny when, um, when you said that you started, well, I read in the book, you know, that you started listening to the shows and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that meant she was listening to me too. And, and I would, you know, think back to some of the funny things that happened during the show and it, it it just it makes it makes me laugh when I think I about that. I listen to them all the time, and so does my husband. When I go, if I'm just going for a quick walk, because some of them are 15 minutes, I just put one on, like you know, at least once a week. So I'm I, same here. I'm hearing your voice all the time. 
Oh, no. <laughs> no, that's great. That's really nice yeah. to hear because it was such a, a highlight for me. It really was. Like, I would just sit back and I kind of felt like I was the second banana or just, you know, the, the Ed McMahon, because really I knew people just wanted to talk to him. So I tried to just kind of keep it to a minimum and, you know, just let, let the people have that interaction. And so I would just get the callers and just so many cool things happened during the show. Like I remember when Anita Morjani just called in out of the blue and I saw her name come up on the screen and all I saw was Anita from Hong Kong. And I just thought, wow, someone's calling in from Hong Kong. And I would get so excited when just someone would call from some far off part of the world because it just gave me, you know, like such a thrill. Oh, this is awesome. We're, we're global. And that was kind of how they made that connection. And then the rest is history with Anita going on to write books and become an amazing teacher in her right. So, you know, we'll, we'll share some of those stories because I have some really fun stories of, you know, I, I got to know him in, in a different way of him being a teacher. And then in, in between, you know, when we would go in a commercial break or something, he would, he would be funny and joke around. And I don't think people knew that he was funny. (laughs) Like he had, he had a funny sense of humor and, you know, talking about Starbucks and coffee enemas and things like that. And we're like, Oh gosh, what are you doing? So it was fun to be able, you know, to watch that and, and to experience that. Yeah, he was the king of the dad jokes. I mean, not only did he sometimes have a crass sense of humor, but he also had a sense of humor that was just cheesy and, you know, roll your eyes kind of thing. But humor was so important to him and it was such a big part of our lives. So um, he he was always funny and he loved comedians and loved funny people. So it was great. Yeah, I think people don't and, and they'll find they'll see that side of him in the book because you get to share pieces that, you know, his regular public didn't get to see. And I think that's one piece that that's nice to be able to share, you know, because he he would say funny things or, you know, crack jokes in in between the breaks and and things like that. So I want to get into the book and and share some of the amazing lessons and the whole story. And, you know, I don't want to spend too much time on on that horrible day in 2015. I mean, your life was irreparably changed. And Losing a parent or anyone close to you, I think it just really changes you in your DNA. I mean, you're, you're never the same. I mean, I know that's true for me and, and losses that I've experienced and, and losing my parents. And you're just, you're never the same. And I just was wondering if you could share a little bit about how you learned to handle grief and those lessons that came from that experience. Yeah. Um, you know, for me, I'll say, Finding out that my father passed away was a shock. It was, you know, he wasn't sick. Um, we had been with him. I had been with him with my sister, Skye, uh, traveling through Australia and New Zealand on a book tour the three weeks before he passed away. And then 48 hours after I got home, I got a call. Actually, Serena is the one who told me. We write about it in the book. And finding out that, um, you know, he had died suddenly. And it was a shock. And it it took my breath away. And, you know, it is for everybody. But in those early uh, days and weeks, uh, I found myself very much lost in the grief and unsure if I was going to be able to apply my dad's life's work to this experience that I now found myself in, you know, because for the first time in my life, what he taught about applied to me in a big way. You know, prior to that, I was 25 years old. My life was pretty smooth sailing. So, um, and growing up, I found that I, if I'm being honest, I was 
both a believer in his work, but also at times skeptical. You know, I was just younger and it didn't apply to me. But some some of the things he would share, I'd be like, wait, what? That doesn't make sense. That's not logical, you know. And um, so after he passed away, I felt like I was sort of at a crossroads of am I going to be able to apply his work to this? And and am I going to be there was a time that I was in the shower and I was um I was crying and it had happened many times early on in the early days that he had passed away where I'd be overcome with grief and I would have this thought pop in my mind that would say, just call dad. And then I would have to sort of wreck it, realize all over again that I'll never do that again, you know, and I, and that the sobs would start and the grief would, and it would, it was uncontrollable and it was um, devastating and it, and it was a cycle that was unhealthy. I mean, it was uh, it was really hard. And so one, I was in the shower one time and that happened again where I had this instinct to call my dad. And then I was like, Sage, you will never call dad again. Stop doing this. And so I said to myself, okay, you need to, you need to understand that you will never call dad again. But you have a lifetime of knowing him and hearing him. I had just been with him hearing him speak for probably 30 hours throughout those three weeks. And... Um, so I said, what would dad say to you now? You know, if you could call him, what would he say to you? And I felt like I heard him say to me, Sage, you can either make this the worst thing that's ever happened to you. You can be the victim. You can go on thinking about all the never agains, all the should haves, all the could haves, you know, and you will, and that will be okay, but you will be stuck and you won't grow from this. Or you can choose to see this as an opportunity to really grow and to view um, life and death and through a whole new lens, you know? And I felt like, wow, that's so true. You know, I have a choice right now. I can see this a little differently. And I, and I also remembered a story in that moment that he shared uh, often in his talks where it was a story about a man who um, his son was at war and he got a knock on his door one morning and was told that his son had passed away and died in battle. And that night the man went uh, into the town and he was dancing and partying at a party. And a woman came up to him and said, you know, she was, it was a small town and she knew what had happened. And she said, how could you be out dancing when you just learned that your son has died? And he said, Sooner or later, I'm going to have to move on from this or it's going to kill me. And he and and he said, so I'm just choosing sooner. And I remembered that story while I was standing in the shower and I thought, yeah, I can choose sooner. I can choose now, you know, and that doesn't mean, first of all, I'm not saying that it's bad to feel the grief and the sadness. Of course, you're going to feel it. But in those moments where you can choose happiness and you can choose sooner, choose it, that that's okay. You know, there's no set a lot of time that you have to be stuck. And for me, it, that the way that that came to me, it meant a lot because I was deciding if I was going to sit the semester out for school. My school was starting just three days later. And I was like, should I go back to school or is this too soon? And, you know, I had all these thoughts swirling through my mind. And the way that that came to me in a moment, and it felt like I didn't feel that I was in any state to be having wise thoughts pop into my head. And it was sort of my first connection to my dad and to my knowing that um, 
there's so much more than what we can physically, you know, I lost him in the physical, but there's so much beyond that. And for me, that started me down a different path um, with how I perceived his death, all death, and and the book flows from there. Yeah, it's such an important lesson. And I'm I'm really glad you could share that and, and talk about this today, because I think a lot of times in the West, and, and your dad talked about this a lot too, that we don't discuss death. We don't talk about it. We don't want to, you know, face that inevitability. And he talked about it a lot. And I remember after his mother passed on the radio show and he said, you know, I'm kind of jealous that she's experiencing this incredible adventure on the other side when we return to source. And he, you know, he was talking about it like he was jealous. I'm like, how could you say you're jealous of someone that's passed? But he, di- he didn't think of it that way. And I think he was able to reframe that experience for a lot of people. And Serena, mm-hmm. I wanted to ask you with, you know, subsequently after his passing, I mean, you experienced some really horrible challenges and, and losing your stepson. And were you able to, you know, process the grief differently? Yes, it was a totally different experience, losing my father versus losing my stepson. My father and I had an entire um, 30 years together. That's how old I was when he passed. And he adored me. He loved me. And I felt that in every moment with him. And and I loved him and I adored him. And so when he passed, as much as I was not ready for him not to be here in the way that I knew him, um, I didn't have any regrets and I didn't have any guilt and I didn't have any fear or shame. In fact, when my dad passed away, I remember the day so vividly because I was on the phone with his assistant when she found him. And um, when I finally got home later that day and was alone for the first time, the thought that kept going through my mind was, okay, dad, I cannot believe you pulled it off. And it's because I also knew, like you said, Diane, that he had an excitement or he looked forward to the day that he would go and go to the other side. And I kept thinking, I can't believe you pulled it off because he talked about it all the time. And I really thought it was something that would never really happen. But I was so open to finding him and feeling him and connecting with him now that he was on the other side because I had no fear or guilt or shame in my relationship with him. When I lost my stepson, who was 19, who had an accidental drug overdose, Um, I had been uh, with his dad since he was 10 years old and my husband had had full custody of him his entire life and had raised him as a single parent. And um, uh, Mason and I, my stepson's name is Mason. Mason and I butted heads a lot. And I, um, I had enormous, enormous regret when he passed away. And I did not feel that I could connect with him because I, I felt that I wasn't worthy of connecting with him because after he died, the only thing I thought was I could have been so much better. And that is true. I could have been. Now that doesn't mean that he and I didn't have a really great relationship because we did. But I think even though I was only 13 years older than him, I think that um, in any situation where you lose a child, um, your child, a stepchild, a grandchild, um, I think that there's just a different feeling and I did not feel as though I could connect with him right away because I didn't feel that I was worthy of it. And it was actually my husband who said to me, he said, you were so 
you were so adamant when your dad died that in order to find him and connect with him and get signs from him or have dreams with him, that you had to think of him from the place of love and from joy. But you're not willing to do that with Mason um, because you have fear. Like that makes no sense. If you have, if you have a desire to connect with him, go to that place where you can only feel the love that you felt for him. At least that's what you taught me to do when you lost your dad. And I remember saying to my husband, I just, I feel so guilty. I feel so guilty of all the times I picked on him for leaving his dishes in the sink or leaving his sweaty shoes on the stairs. And I, I was just afraid, honestly. And I, um, Anyway, I ended up doing it. I ended up, because my husband was encouraging me, I ended up thinking about Mason from um, a really funny story that we had. And I was like in this place of just feeling the love that he and I shared um, as I fell fell asleep. And um, he actually did come to me in a dream that night. And he was so beautiful and he was glowing. And I I said to him, "Um, do you forgive me? And he said, yes. And I said, do you love me? And he said, yes. And I said, do you know that I love you? And he said, yes. And, and I, I knew it. I knew it to be true. And that changing the way that I was looking at the, the passing of my stepson um, from one where this was an accident and he didn't have 75 years like my dad did. And the pain of, of um, his death was enormous. When I felt him in that dream and I was able to connect with him from the place of love, my view of his passing changed. And instead of viewing it as an accident, which it was, it was an accidental overdose, but I didn't view his his 19 years on earth as having been cut short any longer. I actually was able to view it as though we live in a universe where there's divine timing and something bigger than us is moving the pieces in all things, including the loss of a child. And as much as that was really, really difficult for me to get get to that point of understanding that, once I got there, I knew it to be true. And now I can say that losing my stepson, who had 19 years here, it was still in divine, perfect order. And his life was not, in fact, cut short. He came here for 19 years and he left when it was the right time for his soul to go. And I, I don't just believe that. I feel that and I know it. And I know it because his soul on some crazy level has told me that. And, um, and, and my husband, his father feels the exact same way. And that was a choice. That was a choice that we had to make. Were we going to look at his life as having been cut short and the manner in which he died as having been preventable? Or were we going to look at his life and his death as part of God's perfection and that his soul left at the exact right time? And ultimately, we will never know with like scientific irrefutable proof, right, which one is true, but which one brings us peace? Which way of looking at this brings us closer to God? Which one allows us to connect with him? And that's the one that we choose. And I think that everybody has that choice that they can make when they lose somebody, whether it was somebody that was a hundred years old or, or a, a day old, we all have the choice to look at it as though there's something bigger than us moving the pieces. And it's, it's, uh, you know, if, if we live in a universe where there are, where there's divine orchestration with everything, then there are no accidents. 
even when something feels like it really was a major accident. Right. And I think, you know, you share that story about Mason so beautifully in the book. And if it helps people to reframe that experience of loss, it's going to benefit so many people because you're right. You can make that choice of how you're going to experience uh, going through that, you know, and, and it can be a horrible thing or you can get some peace from it. And I think that's really important. And it was a horrible thing. And, and there are still plenty of moments where it feels enormously painful, but I can still choose to look at it as though his soul needed less time in the classroom. That if the human experience, um, the time that you spend in your body on earth is your classroom and your soul comes here to learn and to grow and to expand, then he just needed less time than than maybe I need, you know, on my 36 years on earth or that my dad needed in his 75 years on earth, but that he is home. He's at the place where we will all go and everyone that has ever lived and died has gone there. And when we can look at it in that way, I think that we can find so much more peace and comfort and joy and love um, as opposed to despair and regret and guilt and fear. Right. I mean, our dad always said, um, you know, we all come here with a round trip ticket. And so many of us, uh, we, we put so much, all of us, we put so much emphasis on the birthday. You know, we celebrate it for our whole lives. It's this exciting, it's new life. But the day that we're called home, you know, in most cultures around the world, we we perceive it as the end, the final devastating loss. And like Serena was just saying, you can reframe that, you know, and you can recognize that we all do come here with a round trip ticket. And when that ticket is called, it's not for us to question with our egos. And, and of course, you're going to grieve. I, you know, I want to make it clear that I don't... Um, look down on that at all. That's normal and natural. But that, like you said, if you can reframe it, it can just bring you more peace. Right. And one of the interesting things I read in the book that you shared is that you believe that your father knew on some level that he wasn't going to be here in the physical sense much longer. And I thought that was so interesting because that week before he went on the trip that you went on, Sage, to um, Australia, New Zealand, he was in California and he was staying at La Costa down the street from Hay House. And one thing that I always loved about your dad with the radio show is that it wasn't just a throwaway for him. Like he really liked it. You know, he liked to do it. And so he wanted to do the show that week, even though he didn't have to, he could have just said, Oh, do a replay. Didn't care. He's like, no, I want to do the show. So I went to pick him up at La Costa and bring him back to Hay House and we're talking on the way and I go, you know, you're the hardest working man in showbiz. I said, you, it's like, you don't stop. And we we're kind of laughing. And he goes, you know, I don't want to travel as much. And, and he said he was kind of getting tired of the travel and he was, but he had plans. Like he was excited. He was working on this. He was reading these books. He wanted to do online courses. Like he was excited that the technology was going to enable him to not have to travel. And he seemed, you know, super healthy and, So that's why it was just such a shock to everybody, you know, when that happened. But then you share in the book that there were some uh, things that he did and and some instances where you felt that he knew on some level. And I, I thought that was really interesting because talking about the knowing, like, I think maybe we all will experience that, that we will know on some level. 
that it's our time. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that his uh, conscious mind knew. Because like you said, he was making plans. You know, he had a lot of plans. Um, But somewhere I think his soul knew and was making its preparations to leave. Because, yeah, all of us have uh, some things that, I mean, I have two really poignant things that, like, when I reflected back on, I thought it was just more confirmation to me that this was on purpose because um, one of them was uh, my, I was in graduate school at the time at NYU and I had three years left of that program. And my dad had so graciously agreed to pay for me to go to graduate school. And he had paid for all my siblings to go to undergraduate and as, as much school as they wanted. And he had a very specific system for how he paid our tuition, which was that he would give us a check for the tuition and for our living expenses for one semester at a time. And then um, we were to budget the money, pay the tuition. It had to last the whole semester. Uh, So when I was out in Hawaii with him over my school break in January and for Christmas, at the end of that trip, I was, you know, getting ready to go back to New York to start the semester. He gave me, um, a check for that semester to carry me through the summer until the fall semester. And I said, thank you so much, you know, more than that. But, and then I I went home and I, you know, deposited the check and I started school a few days later, he called me and he said, "Um, I just mailed you a check for all of your remaining semesters at NYU, which was, I think two and a half years worth more. I said three before, but it was two and a half years worth of tuition and living expenses in New York City. I mean, this wasn't... So it was a big check. (laughs) It was a big check. It was more money than I ever had thought of in my life and um, or had or could even conceive of. And I was like, dad, why? Why are you doing that? That's crazy. That's so much money. I don't even feel comfortable taking that much money. Um, Why can't we just keep doing it the way we've been doing it? you know, on and on. And he said, no, when you get the check, you have to deposit it. He said, if something were to happen to me, I want to make sure that my promise to you was fulfilled to put you through graduate school. And if something happened to me, I don't know that that would happen. And I intend to keep my promise to, to put you through school. Wow. And Wait, hold, being, hold that thought one second, yeah. though. We're going to take a short break, and I want you to be able to, to finish that story. Sure. I'm talking with Serena and Sage Dyer about their book out right now, The Knowing, 11 Lessons to Understand the Quiet Urges of Your Soul. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Be Present, The Diane Ray Show. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for joining me through the break here. I just want to pick up with Sage Dyer what we were talking about in the previous segment about the knowing that her dad had on some level that that things were going to shift. And you were sharing in the previous segment that, you know, he was paying for your schooling and you had a certain system worked out that you were comfortable following. And then he kind of shifted, you know, the plan a little bit. Yeah. And that was so unusual he, for him, right? Like he, he seemed kind of serious about that and wanting to right, change I mean, things. 
he had put all of my siblings, all seven of my siblings through college and school in the exact same way. So, th- and I'm the youngest of the eight kids. So this was um, a system that he liked and that we were all comfortable <laughs> with. And when he called me that day, um, he was in a very serious mood. I mean, we talked earlier about how he was always funny and that's maybe a side that not everyone gets to see. He was always funny. When I was talking to him on the phone, it was always light and fun and joy. He was very serious on this call and um, told me that he had sent this check and that he uh, insisted that I deposit it and that I budget it and make sure that it lasts. And I fought, I resisted him on it. I was like, this is crazy. That's too much money, you know, on and on. We went back and forth and he, he said, Sage, I insist. So I did what he said. I remember I called my mom and I thought she would side with me and say he's being dramatic. And my mom was like, you, you should just do what he says, honey, deposit the check. So I, I did deposit the check. I opened a separate checking account so that I could not think, so I wouldn't think I was like Miss Moneybags over here, you know? <laughs> so I would, I did it myself where I would just transfer the money into my regular checking account each semester. But anyway, fast forward, that was January of 2015. You know, he passed away August 30th of 2015, nine months later. He would not have been alive to fulfill his promise of putting me through school. And on that day that he called me in January, some part of him was having a knowing. And and our dad was an innate provider and was also, uh, he always kept his word. I mean, it didn't matter if, what he said. If he said he was going to do something, he would do it, even if he regretted it. If it. And I think that his soul would not have been able to depart peacefully without fulfilling certain promises that he had made. And when I reflected on that, it brought me a a lot of comfort knowing that, you know, this was on purpose. He knew, he knew nine months before he was already preparing. Wow. That's so amazing. I can go to the other one. Go ahead. ahead. No, I was just going to say that um, the, uh, there was, there was another thing that he did um, that his assistant D had told us about um, which was that he had these plants and we all knew how important his plants were. Um, actually, uh, we have a video of him dancing around in the, in the kitchen in the condo in Maui, um, talking about his plants and how much he loves his plants and how beautiful they are. Um, and I remember one time he was going out of town. I was going to be at the condo by myself and he left me like, you know, a lot of instructions about the plants and, how they had to have waterfalls. They couldn't just get water. They had to have waterfalls. And it was just funny and cute. And he would talk to them and he loved them. Yeah, Yeah, you had to tell him you loved them. And and it was a really cute, quirky thing. We would all laugh at him about it. But he he really did love his plants. And um, when he was getting ready to leave for his trip to um, California and then Australia and New Zealand, he was going to be gone um, from his, from Maui for three and a half weeks, but he was also going to be out of his condo for about six months because the complex, the building complex was getting, uh, renovated. And so nobody could stay there. So he had already arranged for his assistant to take his plants and take care of them while he was traveling. And on the day he was getting ready to head to the airport, D, his assistant was over there, um, helping him, you know, bring everything down to the car. And he um, he stopped and he looked around the condo and she felt as though there was like a heaviness to it that she couldn't describe. It was almost like it made her feel sad in the moment. Um, and then he turned to her and he said, you know what, Dee, you can get, get rid of the plants. You can give them to somebody else or you can have them. I don't need them. And she was like, 
Wayne, are you sure you love these plants? And he said, where I'm going, I'm not going to need them. And that was it. And she, I don't know what she did. I think she gave some of them away to her friends or whatever. But I mean, to say that about something that you had put so much time and energy and effort into that you loved, and then to say where I'm going, I'm not going to need them. I mean, that was so unusual for him. And when she told us that after he passed, um, it seemed like, again, it was another thing that just all these little stories added up to, on some level, he must have had a knowing that um, that he wasn't going to be coming back there. And he never did. He never did uh, step foot in that condo again. And he never would have needed those plants with where he was going. That's so interesting. I think that, yeah, as humans, maybe we do have that that innate sense whenever that time comes that that we're aware. It's, it's so interesting. And I wanted to share too is with with the knowing, I mean, there's several things that you bring up and, and with the title, it encompasses several different kinds of knowing, you know, knowing that, that love continues on, you know, knowing that we all go back to source and you both share how you were able to open up more to signs and, and still have a communication and a connection with your dad. And I wanted to, to ask you Sage about the dream that you share in the book because I've had a similar dream like that where it's more than a dream. It's, it's a visitation and it happened shortly after my mother passed. And it was something so silly where we were sitting in, in a bar and we were talking about what kind of cheese plate we wanted. And she said, well, I want this cheese, hon. And, and she touched me and I heard her voice. I felt her touch and I had never had a dream like that before. And right. when you described the dream you had, where your dad was kind of joking with you, yes, I'm here and you can touch me. That right. kind of sent a chill up my spine because I, I, yeah. I, don't, I don't think you can describe it until you've experienced something like that. It and was, I think it's yeah. open to everybody. Right. I, Serena has had some dreams like that too. But for me, it was, um, it was just maybe a month after he had passed away or maybe even less. And I was back in my apartment and actually my uh, husband boyfriend at the time, his, um, his grandfather had just passed away. So he was out of town. So I was alone for the first time sleeping alone. I don't know if that matters, but I, um, my alarm went off in the morning and I was like, Oh, 10 more minutes, please. So I, I hit snooze and I immediately went back into, to sleep and back into a dream state. And in my dream though, I was exactly where I was in real life. I was laying in my bed in my apartment and I was looking at my phone. And then um, I hear my door open. My we, we had a studio apartment at the time, so the door was right by the bed. I, and I hear my door open, so I look up, and it's my dad walking in. And he has like a smirk on his face, a grin. And I got up out of the bed, and I ran over to him. And I was like, are you here? Are you really here? And he was like, yes, I'm here. And I was like, I was blown away because it just was so real. It wasn't a dream. And I said to him, I was like, I know that I'm asleep, but this isn't a dream. And he said, no, it's not a dream. I'm really here. And then the skeptic side of me came out and I said, okay, if you're really here, then I could touch you. And he said, so touch me. And I grabbed his arms with both my hands and I felt his arms. I felt his hairy arms in my hands. And I, then I dropped the skepticism and I hugged him and we laughed and we talked and he told me things and it was such a beautiful, beautiful dream. And, and then my alarm went off and I woke up and, um, and I carried that dream with that feeling with me for days. Cause it was, I just felt so full of 
love from this encounter that I had with him. And then when I was speaking to um, our, our someone who's become our friend, Karen Noe, and she's a psychic medium, and she said to us randomly, a whole bunch of things happened where I wound up in conversation with her, but she said, you know, she asked, have you guys had any dreams? And we all said yes. And she said, well, you'll know it's a real visitation if it's two things, lucid dreaming, like you're aware that you're dreaming. Um, and if you have the ability to touch them, if there's an invitation to touch, an acknowledgement of touching, a sensation of touching. And I was like, I just had this dream. I just had it. I've been telling everybody about this dream. And now you're confirming for me that it was a real visitation. Um, and it, yeah, and I've never had a dream quite like that bef- again. I've had ones where I feel that they were visitations, but not quite so like, wow, you're in the room with me right now, and I know it, and I'm touching you. Right. It was incredible. It's, it's unbelievable when, when that happens. And and what's so great about you sharing those stories in the book is that I think people need to know that you can experience that. Mm-hmm. It's not crazy woo-woo stuff that that love that you have with people that you've lost does continue to carry on. And you're right. Like when I've never had a dream like that one that, that I experienced since then. Right. And, and it was so real where she was right there and I heard her voice and I even woke up crying. And I said to my husband, I heard her, I heard her voice, you know, she was right there. And it was something so silly as us having a cheese plate, you know, but I always remember that, that dream. And you experienced similar things too, didn't you, Serena? Yes. After he passed, I had a dream um, that we were walking, that I was walking on Kanapali Beach, which is where he lived in Maui. And um, I was walking on the sand in front of this building that we stayed in every summer when we were kids. And he was standing in front of the building and he and I were the only two people on the beach. And I could see that he was, it was him up ahead of me. And I ran to him and hugged him. And there was a white bird on the sand behind him, um, which was, you know, another thing for us with the feathers and the birds. And um, so anyway, there was this white bird behind him on the beach. And so we hugged in that one. And I had another one. um, It was actually on my daughter's birthday where I I saw him at a bar, which would be totally not a place he would go. Um, And again, we had a similar thing where I was able to touch him. But I also had one with my stepson. In fact, the, the... dream that I was mentioning before where I saw my stepson the first day after he passed that I was able to think of him from the place of love and joy and fall asleep in that energy. Um, That was when he came to me in a dream. And the first thing I did was say in my dream was, can I touch you? And he put his hands out and I held his hands. Um, And, and I knew to do that in my dream, which this sounds crazy. I know, but I knew to ask him if I could hold his hands or I could touch him because I had already had the experience of losing my father two years prior. And I knew from Sage and from Karen Noe that it's a real visitation if you touch. And so I had lucid dreaming in the sense that I was even asking to confirm that it was really him visiting me. Um, and he confirmed it. And so, yes, I do think that it's available to anyone. And I think the fastest way to get there is to think of them from the place of love and not, not um, sadness. Right. Sadness or guilt or regret. And Karen Noe is, is amazing. And she wrote a book of, of her experiences, um, you know, receiving messages from your dad. So I urge people to check that out. It's Karen Noe, N-O-E. And she's such a sweetheart. And I do want to mention too, we have to bring your mom into the conversation. And, 
uh, you describe the parenting style in the book as a little unconventional. And of course, you didn't know that, you know, growing up because that was just your normal experience. But, you know, what was really great was that both of, of your parents really didn't impart their wishes on you. Like all, all of you and your siblings were able to make your own choices and, and your own mistakes and what you wanted to do and the, and what you wanted to do for a living and that kind of thing. And I guess you didn't really see that difference until you looked out at your friend's experience, right? And what they yeah. went through. And what was that, that lesson that you took away from that, like having that freedom and ability to kind of be yourself for the good and the bad, making, making those choices? Well, I can say that one of the things our dad would say all the time was that, um, like I said before, your soul comes here and it has its own purpose, its own path, its own dharma, if you will. And what your soul comes here to do is to fulfill that, to fulfill that unique expression that it feels called to do and that the soul ex wants to expand and to grow. And he used to love to sing, so don't fence me in. Um, and we have said all the time that because our parents, neither one of them, really ever tried to tell us who to be, what to think, um, how to behave, um, what to believe in, because there was never any... Date, you know. Right, who to date, who to marry. Um, to, go, to go to college or not, all of those things. That none of them were expected or pushed on us. Or it was a choice always, which I think is unique. Like you said. Right. And because there was no um, forced anything, really, uh, besides just coming from a place of love and, and kindness toward each other, um, I think that we all have a genuine desire and, and did with our dad as well, but a genuine desire to be around our parents growing up. Because, you know, we all know what it's like to be around somebody, whether it's a teacher or a mother-in-law or a friend or a boyfriend that tells you what to do. And picks at you and picks on you and tells you, you know, oh, don't do this. Oh, sit up like this. Behave like this. You feel like you want to get away from that person and they bother you and you feel uncomfortable around them. Our parents were not like that. And I think that as children, we felt we felt so seen and so safe with them. And that um, was something that as we got older, we realized how that was very unique Um not everybody's parents said, you know, finish law school or don't finish law school, but you decide. It's got nothing to do with me. And there's so much freedom in that. Um, I, I hope I can do that for my children. And I try to, you know, but I think that, that most parents well-intending, um, you know, tell their children what to do, how to think, who to date, what to believe in all the time. And, and uh, even our parents, they were... Um you know, we write about it in the book in way more detail, but they were on the path to getting a divorce at one point and it got ugly and there were lawyers and it was difficult for our, all of us as a family. And at a certain point, um, they approached each other and they said, we, we can do this with love. We can do this without lawyers. Let's hire, let's fire the attorneys. Let's, you know, and they started to see their relationship through the lens of love again, where, you know, for a, a year or a little more, they were not seen it that way. And um, just that shift, that energy shift served to dissolve the whole divorce altogether. And over time, it turned into this relationship where they stayed married. They stayed best friends. They didn't live together in the same home, but we traveled as a family all the time. We took vacations together. We spent holidays together. Um, 
and it and it worked for them and it was an example for us as kids growing up i mean i was only 11 when that started serena was 15 16 and um it was an example that you don't have to fit into this mold of society i mean i can't tell you how many people asked me oh, so your parents are married or they're separated or what's you know in my whole life and i just said yeah, they're married, but they see other people and they love each other. And we are very much a family and they're my mom and dad. And growing up and witnessing that, it just gives you permission to live your life with whatever rules. It's your rules. There are no rules, you know, and uh, I think all of us sort of uh, embodied that because our parents did it in front of our eyes, you know. Well, it was such a success story, that particular situation. And really, um, when I read that, I think it, you're right. It gives people permission that, look, there's all kinds of relationships in this world and yours may not be like everybody else's. It may not be conventional. And what they were able to craft was really something amazing and really unique. And, you know, to get the lawyers and, and the hate and you did this and you did that out of it and, and come from a place of love is really such an incredible lesson and really a shame that they couldn't have written a book together about that experience. I think that would have been a bestseller yeah. for sure. They definitely right. took the stage together a few times though. So that's out there somewhere and they <laughs> talked about it, but they were best friends. I mean, they spoke on the phone almost every day and they both had other relationships and it worked and it was beautiful. Yeah. And, I wish they could Right. And they redefined well. for themselves what it meant to be, um, you know, they stayed married. So they redefined for themselves what their marriage was going to look like, but they chose to come at it. Both of them chose to come at it from a place of love. Once they got the the fight or the divorce um, proceedings, once they got all that out of the way, that was all the, the stuff, I guess, that they thought they needed to do or they ought to do when you're not going to stay married in the traditional sense any longer. Once they stopped all of that, they got to a place where they only connected through just a mutual love and understanding. And I think that they did not truly, they did not care at all what anybody else thought or how it looked to anybody else or how it might seem or come across because that just wasn't of concern to either one of them. And as a teenage girl, when that happened, when all of that happened, I cannot tell you how incredibly powerful that was for me to see firsthand that here we had two people that could define a marriage or love or their family or their dynamic on their own terms and not be caught up in the way other people were going to to perceive it or how it was going to look or what other people would think. There's so much freedom in that. And when you're raised by parents who live their lives that way. I mean, our dad did not care. He was, uh, you know, self-actualized in in the, the best way possible in the sense that he didn't care if it was a black tie dinner and he was in his Birkenstocks. He wouldn't have even noticed that he was the only one not with the, the right suit on or something because how the clothes that people were wearing was just something that he never even thought about. He wouldn't have even um, wanted to waste any time on that. He wanted to wear his Lululemon and his Burks, and you know that was it. And That's I what think he was that... wearing in my dream, by the way, Lululemon <laughs> and Birkenstock. And mm-hmm. I think that there's such a cool um, lesson in that for all of us that it's like you know it really, it really at the end of your life, it's really not going to matter um, those things. But what are your children, or what are your family members, or what are your friends going to take away? the love that you gave, the love that you shared. And that's really what we feel now is like, 
you know, he defined his his entire life, including the marriage to our mother. He and our mother defined it on their own terms and in their own ways, but in a way that came from love. And wow, how incredible it is to have witnessed that, to know that we can do the same. No matter what, we can choose to come at any situation from love and not get caught up in how other people might view it or judge it or think of it. Um, and I, I, I hope that I can pass that message on to my children as well. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure you will. And yeah, it really is amazing to think of the freedom that, you know, that lesson of freedom that he's passing on to people that, I mean, we spend so much time, you know, worrying about, you know, what someone posted about us on social media or what we're wearing, how fat we are, what we look like and all of that. And he was able to, you know, be free of that and give that up and really be happy and feel good. And he wanted to feel good. And it's funny because you mentioned his phone message in your book. And I've, I've called that phone and, and heard that. That always made me laugh because he would say, you know, if you want to leave a message and it doesn't make me feel good, you know, I'm paraphrasing, it, but, yeah. but don't leave the message, you know? Yeah. And it was so funny because that, that was it. You know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Call Dr. Phil, he would say. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just so it was just so great. And I really um I really think that's an important lesson that he was able to leave for people, what mm-hmm. what he was able to achieve with your mom. And and she just sounds so incredible. I mean, we could probably talk a whole other hour just about her and, and oh, really? her lessons that that she's left, you guys. Um, but one of them I think just to, while we have a couple of minutes left you know, just her dedication to her meditation practice and how that kind of seeped into your lives. And I love that she would have that note on the door, you know, with a bunch of young kids running around, like, don't bother me for 20 minutes. I'm meditating, you know, and how you guys respected that and how valuable that lesson was. I mean, she continues on with that practice, I'm sure. And how you guys are able to carry that on into your life. Yeah. I mean, growing up, she meditated for my whole life, Serena's whole life, all of us, since she was a little girl, I mean, she would tell you herself, but every single day she would go into her room and put her sign on her door, her handwritten sign that said, mom is meditating for 20 minutes. Do not disturb. And we knew not to disturb her unless it was truly like blood and guts, etc. You know, and, and, and there uh, were eight, five of us that were born within eight years. And yeah. So if anybody had an excuse that, you know, if anybody had uh, the right to say, uh, I don't have time, I don't have time to meditate. Right. It's a mother with five children born in eight years, you know, all, and even all on the days, kids. the days that she didn't always have time uh, or she didn't have those 20 minutes in her room, she would find the time. I remember many times being in car line with her picking up, you know, we got there a little early. Okay, Sage, you got to be quiet in the back seat. I'm going to meditate for the next 10 minutes till the kids, the other kids come out, things like that. I mean, she, oh, she never missed a day still to this day. She never misses a day. And our mom is one of the most peaceful people you could ever possibly meet. I mean, nothing rattles her. And um, witnessing that growing up, uh, you know, and just, she never forced it on any of us. And neither, neither did our dad. He was passionate about meditation too, in a different way, not as um, committed as she was. But so, so 
witnessing that. And, and then after our dad died, um, I felt drawn to certain meditations, the ones that he did just because it was him that I was missing. And he had introduced me to a few. And what I found through meditation, which my mom probably told me my whole life, but I wasn't ready to hear it, you know, was that when I uh, got quiet and I allowed for that space between my thoughts, you know, to, to expand and grow, I was able to experience my dad more and, and to experience the knowing more, to feel my intuition more, all of it. But it was only, I mean, it, not only, but it was, it was really, really amplified by a, a, a dedicated daily meditation practice. After doing it for a couple of weeks, I would sort of get visions of my dad when I was meditating. I would see his face float in front of my third eye and things that I was like, you know, skeptical about, like I said. And right. uh, I... She she was our example of meditation for sure, to a, a true commitment because it can, you know, there's studies out there. I mean, it changes your brain matter when you're really disciplined in it. It does. It's such an amazing practice. You know, we just have a minute. It's been so cool to talk with both of you and share some of these stories and and find out a little bit more, you know, about your experience with your dad. And I really urge people to to pick up the book. I loved it. The Knowing. 11 Lessons to Understand the Quiet Urges of Your Soul. So now that both of you have kind of had a little, you know, taste of of speaking and getting out there, I mean, do you have plans to continue and maybe write another book? Yeah, we hope I think, so. I we think hope we both, so, yeah. yeah, we both want to. Our focus right now is on this one and getting it out there. That's what I'm thinking about right now. But yeah, but yeah down the road for sure. I mean, this has been an amazing experience for me. And thank you both so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you giving me the time. And hopefully we'll see some more books coming up in the future. Yeah, thank you for yeah, having thank us. You. It was lovely. It flew by. I can't believe it's already been an hour. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio the voice of an awakening world. Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death, dying, grief, hospice care, cultural traditions, and also our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.